Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Chloe Bryder, who is an investor at Renegade Partners, where she focuses on finding early stage investment opportunities and is a Pair VC fellow. She's currently completing her second year MBA at Harvard Business School. Chloe has worked in the technology sector for five years, investing in companies including Datadog, Eightfold.ai, and UiPath. She's also an angel investor focused on investing in underrepresented founders. Previously, Chloe was an investor at IVP, a later stage venture capital firm based in Menlo Park, California, where she was primarily focused on enterprise and fintech businesses. She started her career as an investment banking analyst in the TMT group at Goldman Sachs. Welcome to our show, Chloe. We are really happy to have you on. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm excited. It's been a long time in the making. I'm glad we could finally get together. Absolutely. So jumping right in, Chloe, curious to hear if you can talk a little bit about your transition from banking to venture capital. Was that a TMT focus at Goldman Sachs? Was that intentional and a driver for this transition to tech investing? So going into TMT within banking was definitely intentional. One piece was I'd been vaguely interested in tech for years and years. I think it's one of the most exciting things out there that are kind of in your face. Growing up on the West Coast, we knew TechCrunch, all these different pieces, even coming from a tiny town. So I had a small interest. And then when I did my first internship at Goldman in Private Wealth, I was spending a lot of my time just asking as many people as I could what are the most interesting places in the firm today? And pretty much unanimously, based on both my personality um, and other feedback, everyone pointed me towards investment banking. And more than that, they said TMT is the place to be. There are a lot of transactions, lots of volume, interesting people. So both based on what I thought I might be fascinated by, as well as advice from others, I decided to move into the TMT side of banking. And I spent two years there. And part of the context for switching into venture capital eventually was having my eyes opened basically towards the end of my second year that there were so many more opportunities out there than just banking. So for me, I was a two plus two at HBS, meaning I got in as an undergrad and I thought, okay, I'll do two years in banking, go straight to school. And then over the years, I let that evolve and tried to have a bit of more of an open mind. So the big tipping point for me was just meeting investors and understanding what they did every day and realizing that I think what they did every day was much better than what I did every day (laughs) and looking forward thinking when I'm 30, 40 years old, how do I want to spend my time and how do I start to get there now? So that was really why I started to transition into venture and and think about exploring that field. That's interesting. And and you make two interesting points that one, follow the tailwinds. I mean, if TMT was hot sector, then follow it. And, And there'll always be a new tailwind that you can, new sets of tailwind rather that you can follow. So that makes sense. And two, I think you mentioned that you saw yourself what do, doing what in 30 to 40 years. I think that's a longer term horizon, uh, which should be the other caveat that you should apply. So it makes a lot of sense. Many of our listeners, Chloe, are just starting to explore their career as a venture capitalist. And a key consideration for them is generally the stage of investment. Is it late stage? Is it early stage? Where do they fit well? So can you detail out a little bit, how is a day in the life of an early stage investor different from the day in life, from a day in the life of a later stage investor? Sure. I mean, taking myself back to the time where I was deciding, the reason I went into late stage first from banking was that I felt I didn't have that much to offer on the early stage side. I had never been a PM. I wasn't an engineer. You know, what did I know that someone else might not in those shoes? And the answer I came up with was absolutely nothing. 
And so going into growth, it made sense. It's a lot about the financial modeling, diligence calls, a lot of things you might've done in a banking process. And now that I've moved earlier, I would say there are two key differences that stand out to me. One is that an early stage investor, the universe is just much bigger because I'm considering companies all the way from the pre-seed up through, frankly, series seed. Whereas at IBP, there was a basic cutoff of a run rate where before that, it just wouldn't be worth my time. So as the universe gets bigger, that means your sourcing strategies have to change. I spend a lot more of my time trying to be proactive, learning about sectors, doing lots of research, casting a super wide net, and building systems that help us do that faster. At Renegade, we're really trying to focus a lot on the data side and work in partnership with a great new team member we have to build out systems to help us do it faster. But that's the one key difference is the sourcing side is different. And so your day-to-day, there's a lot more time spent on that versus in the late stage, um, at least from my perspective of where I sat at IDP. And then another thing that's different within the diligence process to me is the decision-making. So while a lot of the work is similar, you go through whatever financials there might be, a lot of diligence calls, reference calls, things like that. Um, What's different, at least in the way that we treat things at Renegade, is really how you make the end decision. There's so much less to go on. It's not just about the financial model and how you value the business. It's less on valuation in the medium to you know, near term as it is on the big picture. How big can this be? Will this really swing the fund? Will this really put us over the edge? And one thing we focus on at Renegade is, again, around the process side, more so than just the outcome. So we work with this woman named Annie Duke, who is a decision scientist turned professional poker player who helps us try to pull out, pull ourselves out of the unique case in front of us and think about broadly, how should we make a decision like this? So if you're looking at a series A business, what are the things I should exclude that are biasing me? And what are the things I need to focus on? And I think that that applies less at a later stage firm where the competition makes it so that you have to decide super quickly and you have to decide largely on the nearer term valuation. That makes total sense. And I think the next one that, that we're curious to hear about will, will be an extension of what you just shared. And we read that you're an angel investor focusing on investing in underrepresented founders as well. Curious to hear about your thesis about it in terms of what's really exciting to you in that, uh, what's your vision behind investing in this demographic? And if you can lay out a couple of investments that you're most excited about. Happy to. So I think, I mean, first of all, it's from a mission perspective, the right thing to do. Unfortunately, in a lot of my prior seats, there was just very little opportunity to be investing in people of color, um, particularly black women. There were very few moments I saw them come across at Goldman or even at IDP. And to me, that feels wrong. So what's one way to make a difference? Invest as early as possible in people that are great that come from those backgrounds. But more than that, frankly, It's just the returns. I think if you're looking at businesses all else equal and you think about great founders who have been dinged time and again for reasons that have nothing to do with their business, the unfortunate fact, but fortunate side as an investor is that these are not priced correctly. These are not businesses that are hitting the markets in any sort of efficient manner because they're being ignored based on factors that just shouldn't matter. And so one example of that is a portfolio company of mine called Upgrade Salons. This is a business that focuses on um, hair extensions for black women. And in the past, this phenomenal founder 
um, Brittany, who came out of HBS, had trouble fundraising. And there had been other businesses in the space that were comps run by men or white men in particular that were doing great. And to me, this was absurd for a number of reasons, not least of which that these people really didn't experience the true problem that she did. So when looking at a business like this in particular, I thought about the outcomes in Drybar and other businesses on the consumer side that have been super positive and then compared it to this business in particular, which is, this is much higher AOV. People spend more on this product. It's stickier. And not only that, the, the current customer experience is awful. It's just terrible. I think most of my black female friends would agree. They go and spend hundreds of dollars and have to do so in a salon that is not nearly up to par with what they're paying. It's not commensurate. And that's frustrating. And I think when you see a huge consumer problem tackled by someone who truly understands the problem, I get excited personally. And at the end of the day, as I mentioned, when you face troubles in fundraising, that means that the valuation compresses. So while today I spend a lot of time trying to help people like Brittany make sure they break out of that, and she's done a phenomenal job, just recently raised more capital at a great price, super excited for her. But at the time of first investment, if you're one of the first people to back them, you kind of benefit from that little arbitrage of others who are turning away when they really shouldn't be. So I think there's a great reason on the greed side to be investing in amazing founders who've been ignored to date. But again, it's something that's just important to me as a human being. These are great friends of mine who I get introduced to and there's nothing better than supporting great businesses and smart founders. And this is just a special way to do it. That's really inspiring. And I was just reading one of the pitch book reports yesterday, a uh, couple of data points. Anecdotally, or with, with some, uh, in, in last year, 2020, basically, the investments that happened. Um, anecdotally, what PitchBook revealed was that uh, founders of founding teams who had at least one co-founder as a woman were able to uh, were able to return about 1.7x what just men on founding teams were able to, to return to their investors. Um, but the sad part is that there are less than 14% such startups which actually had just a woman co-founding team or a co-founding team which had one woman representation. So I think the point you make, which is, hey, they, are, they could be undervalued today, which is probably why they're, they're able to actually, you know, uh, eventually get sold at, at the right value and they're able to prove out their business and somebody, someone like you stepping up to actually believe in them in their early stages. Um, it's a smart business move. Does, is that, I mean, it's, it's almost borderline, uh, you know, like you said, it, it doesn't feel right to say that they're not getting the price that they should be today. But then that's the opportunity and the arbitrage that you're betting on and, and saying that, hey, they are amazing. I mean, their their color or gender or race is not going to be defining their their talent to be able to create a beautiful business or, or a really remarkable business. And that's the hedge, uh, the bet that you make in them. So uh, really inspiring to hear that, Chloe. Um, just following up on that, um, do you see any concerted efforts to address gender inequality in this industry? And like you said, that you see founders who are able to relate to the problem being able to solve it much better, right? Uh, I'll just follow up on that to say that even investors will have a similar lens, right? I mean, you can relate it better because you're you're a female at the end and you can relate to those hair extensions probably a lot better than any other guy for that matter in that investment team, right? So there is gender inequality on both sides of the table um, and there are causations and, and, you know, we can debate on what is causing what, but there is for some reason a bias and less representation um, across uh, across different kinds of diversities. But do you think that that's changing today? And do you see initiatives that you think could address this disparity more effectively? 
I think one of the key pieces within the industry driving change is really Allraise. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that organization, um, but Allraise was started by several female investors, but really led by Aileen Lee in the beginning, who is an HBS alum and runs Cowboy Ventures. And the point of Allraise initially was to get a bunch of women together and support each other to do better in the industry, to drive great returns, to support sourcing efforts, all these different pieces, because we were realizing, you know, a lot of times these informal networks with among men, be they poker nights or golf games or what have you, always include business. And oftentimes, unfortunately, for whatever reason, if women get together and, and we're spending time, even though we're investing, even when it's among ourselves, we're not necessarily always focused on doing business, whether it's an awkwardness or some, some sort of social issue, we're not always talking about money with each other. So the first piece was like, let's support each other, let's do business. And from there, it's expanded immensely. And really they're targeting several different pieces of, of ways of attacking this problem. So you can think about it as a funder, you could think about diversifying firms and diversifying who makes decisions in check writing, right? That's one piece. You can think about it as backing founders who are diverse and making sure they're more successful and also targeting founders who are successful white men to bring in more diverse teams, to bring in more investors. There's multiple ways to go at it from the founder operator side. And then you have to think about other constituencies. We think about these ally programs of, of strong male investors who care about making a change. How do we bring them into the fold? And finally thinking about LPs, because at the end of the day, if LPs don't care and funds get raised regardless, there's not going to be much change. So to me, Allraise is fantastic. They put together many different programs around cohorting of women to help them be better. Also, as I mentioned, these mentor and ally type of programs, helping founders go from the Series A and beyond, really break out and, and raise money. And just even giving them a sense of comps of what valuations they deserve helps. The area that I personally see as needing the most attention is really on the LP side. I think that one thing you just mentioned is really this difference in returns. And there are many different studies out there that show diverse management teams do outperform. And yet we don't really see that matched on the LP side. And I think that disconnect is very interesting. I think at the end of the day, as a big capital allocator on the limited partner side, all you should be concerned with is what research shows drive returns. But we don't quite see that shift yet. I think most of the uh, more diverse firms or firms led by women or underrepresented groups aren't getting attention from the biggest LPs. They're often kind of coming out of a different piece of capital that's only for underrepresented groups, things like that. And that I find really puzzling and interesting. And I think there's room to go. But overall, I am very positive in my outlook for the future. I think that things are changing. I think that the best thing that we could do as women or people of color is to have amazing returns and amazing outcomes and just make this thing of the past because as we build our own companies and our own firms and set the standards that just bad behavior won't fly, nothing like that's going to happen here and we do really well, a lot of the worst parts of the industry will go away. I think you know, the line about sunlight being the best disinfectant is very true. A lot of things have come out and and hopefully won't be repeated in the way that they used to be. So I'm very optimistic. That's really that's really heartening to hear. And seven out of our 10 guests mention always. So I'm sure our listeners are more than following it now. 
Uh, and seven out of our 10 guests also say that they're only excited about what's to come because it only looks bright and better. So the other promising thing to go by. Um, that brings us to an end, Chloe. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your amazing insights. I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Uh, and before we let you go, uh, we have a small rapid fire. Um, a few questions that we'd love for you to answer with a blink of an eye. Um, and as you're ready, I'll, I'll kick it off. The first one is on a lighter note. Um, are you a beach person or a mountain person? That's tough. I have to say both. I grew up in Lake Tahoe, so it's literally beach and mountain in the same place. There were some days in the spring where I'd ski in the morning and hit the beach in the afternoon. Um, I think if I had to pick only one, I'd say mountains. I just love them. <laughs> Amazing. Um, could you name a couple of role models that you really look up to as an inspiration? First and foremost, I would definitely say Ariana Huffington. The first investment that I made at Thrive Global, IVP, sorry, was in Thrive Global Series B, where Ariana Huffington is the founder and CEO. And I think from a distance, she seems absolutely amazing. But up close, it's even more than that. She is someone who can connect to people so authentically, so deeply, sincerely cares what's going on with you. And it didn't matter that I was the most junior person at this random firm to her. To this day, we keep in touch and I feel as if she really cares. So I'm deeply impressed by her. Another role model is definitely Aileen Lee. With everything she has on her plate, she still finds time to found always, drive initiatives forward and be there for other women in the industry. She's amazing. And another, I would say um, Padma Warrior. This one, I just met her. She is a super, super sharp exec and is launching a new business called Babel based around her own passions um, to do with lifelong learning. And I think that it's amazing to see someone with so much success continue to start new things, continue to innovate, continue to care about the world around her and starting such a mission-driven business. Very impressed by her as well. Super awesome. All three names you listed are founders in, in some form or shape. So really inspiring to know uh, the names you just said. Uh, which was the most recent book or podcast that you followed and you really liked? So we just had our inaugural All Raised Book Club, which I led, and it was on Padma's platform for Fable. And it was called Untamed by Glennon Doyle, which I think is a bit the book of the moment for women these days. The beautiful part of it was just the conversation we sparked. And I think that um, most people took a lot away from it in terms of being your authentic self and spending time the way you want to, because so many of us are privileged to be able to do that. And it's really a shame if you don't take advantage of it. Awesome. And the last one we have for you, Chloe, is what's your mantra in life? My mantra, I recently took a class at school actually called Authentic Leader Development, and we had to come up with these purpose statements. And this amazing classmate of mine to me said that he thought that mine should be open the door because a lot of what makes me happy and excited is um, maybe getting somewhere first, but then making sure that I let lots of other people in behind me. And I loved the way it was. I mean, I thought it was succinct and, and really stuck with me. So that's something I do try to keep in mind, particularly in my professional life. Love it. It gives a very optimistic vibe open the door amazing thanks again chloe we're really glad to have you and uh yeah we'll, we'll keep in touch and take this forward great i enjoyed it thanks so much for having me